Chapter 3 of What the White Race May Learn from the Indian by George Wharton James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 The Indian and Nasal and Deep Breathing. The Indian believes absolutely in nasal breathing. Again and again I have seen the Indian mother, as soon as her child was born, watch it to see if it breathed properly. If not, she would at once pinch the child's lips together and keep them pinched until the breath was taken in and exhaled easily and naturally through the nostrils. If this did not answer, I have watched her as she took a strip of buckskin and tied it as a bandage below the chin and over the crown of the head, forcing the jaws together, and then, with another bandage of buckskin, she covered the lips of the little one. Thus the habit of nasal breathing was formed immediately the child saw the light, and it knew no other method. As one walks through the streets of every large city, he sees the dull and vacant eye, the inert face, of the mouth-breather. For, as every physician well knows, the mouth-breather suffers from lack of memory and a general dullness of the intellect. Not only that, but he habitually submits himself to unnecessary risks of disease. In breathing through the nose, the disease germs, which abound in our city streets and are sent floating through the air by every passing wind, are caught by the gluey mucus, or the capillaries of the mucous membranes. The wavy air passages of the nose lead one to assume that they are so constructed expressly for this purpose, as the germs, if they escape being caught at one angle, are pretty sure to be trapped in turning another. When this mucus is expelled in the act of blowing the nose, the germs go with it, and disease is prevented. But when these germs are taken in through the mouth, they go directly into the throat, the bronchial tubes, and the lungs. And if they are lively and strong, they lodge there and take root and propagate with such fearful rapidity that in a very short time a new patient with tuberculosis, diphtheria, typhoid, or some other disease is created. Hence, emulate the Indian. Breathe through your nose. Do not use it as an organ of speech. At the same time that you care for yourself, watch your children, and even if you have to bandage them up while they are asleep, as the Indians do, compel them to form early this useful and healthful habit of nasal breathing. But not only do the Indians breathe through the nose, they are also experts in the art of deep breathing. The exercises that are given in open-air deep breathing at the Battle Creek Sanitarium each morning show that we are learning this useful and beneficial habit from them. When I first began to visit the Hopis in northern Arizona, I was awakened every morning in the wee small hours as I slept in my blankets in the open at the foot of the mesa upon which the towns are located by cowbells, as if a number of cows were being driven out to pasture. But in the daytime, I could see no cows, nor any evidence of their existence. When I asked where they were, 
my questions brought forth nothing but a wondering stare. Cows? They had no cows. What did I mean? Then I explained about the bells, and, as I explained, a merry laugh burst upon my ears. Cows? Those are not cows. Tomorrow morning when you hear them, you jump up and watch. I did so, and, to my amazement, I saw fleeing through the early morning dusk a score, more or less, of naked youths, on each one of whom a cowbell was dangling from a rope or strap around his waist. Later I learned this running was done as a matter of religion. Every young man was required to run ten, fifteen, twenty miles, and even double this distance upon certain allotted mornings as a matter of religion. This develops a lung capacity that is nothing short of marvelous. This great lung capacity is in itself a great source of health, vim, energy, and power. It means the power to take in a large supply of oxygen to purify and vivify the blood. Half the people of our cities do not know what real true life is, because their blood is not well enough oxygenated. The people who are full of life and exuberance and power, the men and women who accomplish things, generally have large lung capacity, or else have the faculty of using all they have to the best advantage. To a public speaker, a singer, a lawyer, a preacher, or a teacher, this large lung capacity is invaluable. For all things else being equal, the voice itself will possess a clearer, more resonant quality if the lungs, the abdomen, and the diaphragm are full of, or stretched out by, plenty of air. These act as a resonant sounding chamber, which increases the carrying quality of the voice to a wonderful extent. For years I have watched with keenest observation all our greatest operatic singers, actors, orators, and public speakers and those who possess the sweet and resonant voices are the ones who breathe deep and own and control these capacious lungs. Only a few weeks ago I went to hear Sarah Bernhardt, the world's most wonderful actress, who at sixty-three years of age still entrances thousands, not only by the wonder of her art, but by the marvelous quality of her voice. What did I find? a woman who has learned this lesson of deep breathing as the Indians breathe. She breathes well down, filling the lungs so that they thrust out the ribs. She has no waistline, her body descending, as does that of the Venus, in an almost straight line from armpit to hips. The result is that, with such a resonant air cavity, she scarcely raises her voice above the conventional pitch, and yet it is easily heard by two or three thousand people. It is needless to add that every Indian woman is intelligent enough to value health, lung capacity, and the power to speak with force, vigor, and energy more than she values fashionable appearance. Hence none of them can be found in their native condition foolish enough to wear corsets. 
I never knew an Indian woman who needed a corset, don't you know, to brace her up to sustain her weak back. Of course, if a white woman is large and fleshy, and values appearance more than health, I suppose she will have her own way anyhow, but this other reason that women give for the use of the corset I never heard fall from the lips of an Indian woman. She is strong and well, and needs no artificial support. I regret very much to see that while sensible women are giving up the corset, or at least materially loosening its strings, men are beginning to wear belts in place of suspenders. It is just as injurious to a man to encircle his waist and squeeze together the vital organs as it is to a woman. It is bad, absolutely, completely, thoroughly bad, at all times, in all circumstances, for all people. The wasp-like waist, whether in men or women, is a sign either of recklessness, gross ignorance, or deliberate preference for a false figure over a normal one, and health. The hips are a most important part of a human being's anatomy. As Dr. Kellogg has well said, No physical endowment is of more importance for a long and vigorous life than capacious lungs. The intensity and efficiency of an individual's life depend very largely upon the amount of air he habitually passes in and out of his lungs, just as the intensity of a fire, granting plenty of fuel, depends upon the rate at which the air is brought in contact with the fuel. It has been found that lung capacity depends very largely upon the height. Thus, the taller a person, the greater his lung capacity, other things being equal. The following table shows the lung capacity, or rather the amount of air which can be forced out of the lungs, the so-called vital capacity, for men of different heights. Height, 64 inches, weight, 115 pounds, vital capacity, 205 cubic inches. Height, 65 inches, weight, 126 pounds, Vital capacity, 228 cubic inches. Height, 66 inches. Weight, 126 pounds. Vital capacity, 230 cubic inches. Height, 67 inches. Weight, 133 pounds. Vital capacity, 244 cubic inches. Height, 68 inches. Weight, 134 pounds. Vital capacity, 248 cubic inches. Height, 69 inches. Weight, 140 pounds. Vital capacity, 254 cubic inches. Height, 70 inches. Weight, 141 pounds. Vital capacity, 256 cubic inches. Height, 71 inches. Weight, 150 pounds. Vital capacity, 272 cubic inches. Height, 72 inches. Weight, 151 pounds. Vital capacity, 287 cubic inches.
The proper time for the development of the chest is in childhood and in youth. The best of all means for increasing the chest capacity is running and active sports of all sorts. Mountain climbing, going up and down stairs, and all kinds of exercises which produce strong breathing movements are effective means of chest development. Exercises of this nature are far superior to breathing exercises, so-called, of whatever sort. Breathing exercises in which the lungs are forcibly compelled to take in more than the ordinary amount of air very soon becomes tiresome. The effort is wholly voluntary, and the muscles soon weary. When, however, a thirst for air is created by some active exercise which fills the blood with carbonic acid gas, so that deeper and more rapid breathing is necessary to rid the body of this poisonous gas and to take in a supply of oxygen in its place, the act of breathing is no longer difficult, embarrassing, or tiresome, but is, on the other hand, a pleasure and a gratification. The impulse which comes from within, from the so-called respiratory centers, so excites the respiratory muscles that they cause the chest to execute the strongest breathing movements with the greatest ease, ventilating every portion of the lungs, filling every air cell to its utmost capacity. Runners always have large and active chests, whereas sedentary persons have chests of limited capacity and rigid walls. When a chest is not stretched to its utmost capacity many times daily, it rapidly loses its flexibility. This is especially true after the age of thirty. In persons who have passed middle life, the rigidity of the chest is so great that there can be no very considerable increase in size. By development of the respiratory muscles, the chest capacity may be to some degree increased, but the proper time for chest development is in childhood and youth. At this period also, the integrity of the heart renders possible without injury those vigorous exercises which are essential to secure the highest degree of chest development. Probably the best of all exercises for the development of the chest and breathing powers is swimming. The position of the body, the head held well back and the chest well forward, and the active movements of the arms and limbs render swimming a most efficient breathing exercise. The contact of cold water with the skin also actively stimulates the movement of the chest while at the same time it renders possible prolonged and vigorous muscular movements by increasing the energy and activity of the muscles. Special breathing exercises, as well as those active muscular movements which induce a thirst for air, are beneficial to the lungs by maintaining the flexibility of the chest, strengthening the respiratory muscles, and ventilating the lungs. These movements also exercise a most extraordinary beneficial effect upon the stomach, liver, and other organs which lie below the diaphragm. Each time the diaphragm contracts, 
It gives the liver, stomach, and adjacent organs a hearty squeeze, so to speak, emptying out the blood contained in these parts, as one may by compression empty a moist sponge. All movements which increase the strength of the abdominal muscles are an important means of aiding and improving the breathing function. From this it will be seen, therefore, that everything that prevents the full and free exercise of the lungs, especially in the lower portions, is of direct injury to the body. Men need all the lung capacity and power they can gain in order to sustain their energy in the battle of life, and women, especially young women, who are to become the future mothers of the race, should be taught that the art of healthy, deep breathing is one of the fine arts and the most important one that they can learn. End of chapter 3